What's up, my friends? My name's Kyle. I surf, I make movies, and I love asking questions. These are conversations with fascinating people I meet along the way. New mini-documentary coming at you January 4th that I hosted for Seeker Network. I went down to southern Chile in the Araucanía region to do a story on an indigenous conflict with the Mapuche people. It was a very intense situation, and I'm really proud of the way that the story came out. So you can head over to my website, kyle.surf slash blog, to, uh, to see it. Also, if you want the latest mini-documentaries, podcasts, and things that I'm digging sent to you, head over to the website, kyle.surf, and sign up for the newsletter. No spam ever, only great stuff. My guest today is Charles Post. Charles is an ecologist, storyteller, someone who I've been a big fan of for a long time. He came down to Santa Cruz, and we had a, a high-energy conversation about the state of wildlife in America today, specifically what's happening with wild horses. Super articulate, fun guy, a lot of laughs. Um, so you're going to dig it. You're going to dig it. My voice is cracked today. My voice is cracked. Uh, last night, 1 in the morning, New Year's, Something came over me. I just decided to take off all my clothes and run down the street and do a cold plunge. Had a few people over. I was like, who's coming with me? Who's coming with me? No one was coming with me. So I was running down the street solo until one person started running behind me. And then two people. And then four. And then five. Until we had a parade of naked people, like the mannequins from Westworld, running down my street to jump in the 52-degree water at 1 in the morning. It was a great way to bring in 2017, but as a result, I sounded a little raspy today. Without further ado, hope you enjoy this conversation with Charles Post. Kyle Cameron here. I'm in Cape Town. I was the only journalist in northern Nigeria. Not an adventure until you get lost in Tijuana. You get caught inside by a giant wave and you feel really alone. I love the adventure of waking up and not knowing what will happen and that being my job. I'm standing at a desert oasis right now. A lot of tourists don't see this part of Bali. Smiles and thumbs up. Thumbs up. We got Charles Post in the house, fresh from a cold plunge. Yep. Cup of coffee. Charged. Feeling good. Don't spontaneously combust into flames on this show. We're <laughs> feeling amped up. We got it all going. <laughs> you ever feel like you drink a cup of coffee and you don't become any more articulate? No, Nothing gets faster. You just get sweaty and your heart starts racing. <laughs> yeah, you can see your shirt moving. Exactly. I, I think coffee for me is more of a, uh, just the whole process, like the experience of having a warm cup because I don't I don't feel the uh, maybe the first cup gets me going but cup two cup three do you do three do you do two and then I, number three like I'll do two straight off the bat in the morning you can be I, honest this is an yeah. honest place <laughs> it's a safe zone this is a safe zone uh you know I'll do I'll usually do two and then depending on kind of how the day is unfolding maybe a third but I try not to do anything after you know two two thirty do you do coffee before you eat breakfast too I do because I'm not a big breakfast guy. Not a big breakfast guy. No, two cups of coffee usually gets me going. You're like Wim Hof. That guy eats one <laughs> meal a day at 5 p.m. Yeah, I'm big on that late meal. I'll do, you know, some uh, like cashews or an apple or something midday, but more for me, it's just if I can get coffee and a big jug of water, you know, maybe a vegetable juice, mm. I kind of go. 
Just smoothie too. Are you a smoothie guy? Mostly vegetable juice. Ginger. Ginger shots. What can you get when <laughs> when you're out on these adventures yeah, that you're on? What what kind of food are you eating? Well, I'll bring ginger root with me. And like if I have a stove, I'll uh, you know, cut up a bunch of ginger and boil it slowly for, you know, maybe an hour and make a nice tonic. I love that. Wow. And then, you know, a lot of towns have health food stores, even some of these rural places, or you can go get good, get good produce. Or if I'm in a really remote spot, like at some ranch out, you know, wherever in Texas or something, I'll get things uh, FedExed. What? Yeah, because, you know, I mean, there's no grocery stores. So if you want some whatever. Calling back to California. Like, <laughs> I, like, I'm like, I need a bag of goji berries out here. <laughs> we need avocado stack. <laughs> Actually, it's been funny. I've, uh, the last six months, I've done a lot of projects out in really rural and remote areas you know places like kind of the heart of nevada new mexico colorado texas whatever and one of the things i bring with me as kind of my uh comfort food if you will is a bag of goji berries and i so i've met all these you know ranchers and hunters and and people who've probably never who've definitely have never heard of goji berries and instead of like first ascents or you know some big adventure we'll do we'll do we'll be the first people to eat goji berries in a location it's kind of like doing a first ascent, mm. right? So instead of being the first one to climb the peak, we'll maybe go to the trailhead and eat goji berries. Yeah, some people climb Mount Everest and some people eat goji berries right? in the first place ever. <laughs> it's tomato, tomato, I guess, right? So I've been at, it's actually really funny. Because are you like, the, are you like you some kind of California fruitcake with your goji berries out on here on our ranch? But it's great because I've had, I cannot, I actually got a thank you card from a friend who runs a ranch in Montana. And I remember right the first night, you know, we're in a wall tent sitting out in the middle of the desert shooting uh, a project on wild horses uh, for National Geographic Adventure. And he looks at my goji berries and he's like, he's, he had no idea. And I'm not kidding. By the end of that trip, he was begging me for goji berries. And he wrote me a thank, handwritten thank you note saying, goji berries are now a staple at the ranch. My wife loves them. It's totally changed my life. And everybody that I've met recently, even I was down in South Texas doing a hunting project for Mossy Oak. And uh, I gave goji berries to all the hunting guides, and they thought it was great. So I'm ch- I'm changing the world one goji berry at a time. You sure are. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, I had uh, I sat down with this guy um, who lives up in Davenport. You know who Wallace J. Nichols is? He's a scientist. He he um, he wrote a really good book called uh, Blue Mind. It's all okay. about like what happens to your mind when yeah. you when you go in the ocean, when you're around the ocean. Yeah. Um, and he has this project called the Blue Marble Project, where he has blue marbles in, yeah. in his pocket, and then he will tell you like you know, when you are in space, yeah. and he has this very deep and kind of uh, mesmerizing voice. And <laughs> if you were to look at the Earth from space, yeah, it would look like a blue marble. Huh. And then he gives you the blue marble. Wow. So you could be doing that with goji berries. Yeah. <laughs> Transformative. <laughs> Sounds like a therapist voice. Yeah. Somebody... It's, it's, it's deep, man. <laughs> After half an hour of your sleep, though. It's very meditative. <laughs> um, so where did you just come back from? Yeah. So I was down in South Texas uh, working on a film with uh, a, a great friend, mentor, uh, filmmaker, Ben Masters. Um, he's known for his unbranded film uh, in which he rode wild mustangs from mexico to canada so he's totally embedded in in kind of the west and conservation in the west and um so he and i kind of teamed up with a hunting brand uh, mossy oak um that's owned and and founded by the hayes family uh, just a, a a great group of stewards and conservationists that have really changed the way the southeast is managed what do they make uh camouflage so they're like the purveyor of America's camouflage. I mean, every Walmart in the country sells mossy oak, and and it's it's great gear, you know, hunting gear. Um, 
I mean, being an ecologist, I wear a lot of camouflage just to watch animals with binoculars. So it's kind of whatever you want to use it for. Um, but they've been just amazing because conservation is something that's so integral um, to their identity and, and their kind of like moral and ethical fabric. So over the last year and a half, of, I've become really close with the family. And there's two sons, Neil and Daniel, um, who are, you know, late 20s. And we've kind of teamed up and had a lot of really exciting conversations about the future of wilderness and wildlife and conservation. And uh, through those conversations, I've been reminded that the hunting and fishing contingency in the United States is what funds a lot of conservation. You know, it's not people hiking the PCT. It's not people out, you know, kayaking the rivers that go through Yellowstone. It's hunters with their uh, with their licenses and their permits and um, their various uh, stamps, at ammunition taxes. It's fishermen with their fishing licenses. And that's the funding that supports a majority of conservation in, the, in America. So bring me into an example of that, because most yeah. people are not hunters. Most people are not around wild animals. Right. And um, I'm just getting into this world. Right. And one of the first things that exposed me to this world was a piece that Radiolab did called The Rhino Hunter. Did you ever right. see yeah, that one? Yeah, that was a great, great right, story. About the guy who pays 300 grand to right. go hunt a Namibian black rhino. Right. And it's all about the moral um, battle between like, do we hunt this animal? But they get an older post-reproductive male that is killing younger males on in, in Namibia. Right. And the guy's paying 300 grand that all that money is then going to go to habitat restoration. It's going to go to species management. And as a result, as a whole, the black rhinos are coming back. Right. So that was the first thing that got me thinking like, huh, this is this is interesting right. because um, even now that that I did this story over in Hawaii on um, the pig uh, populations and and the hillside erosion that they're they're causing and as and I started following a bunch of hunters on Instagram right. and even st still like I'll I'll be going through my feed and then there will be like deadly hunters and it'll be like a photo of a big boar skinned and them smiling next to it. even still I'm like, Ew, yeah. like Ew. but I'm beginning to understand that as a whole. It's really important. And I think that most people's conversations stop at that, ugh, the kill shot. I don't like to see a dead animal. Right. And I, so I've fallen into this a little bit by accident, but am fascinated by it because I, I really do think that hunters and and land management is one of the most important topics of our time right now. Absolutely. And very few people are talking about it. So can you give me... Um, an example of how it works Absolutely. in America right now. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So just to to backtrack to kind of the the dawn of conservation in America. I mean, essentially what happened was, you know, we came over from Europe. We moved the Indians off the land. We systematically slaughtered bison and white-tailed deer and pronghorn and the megafauna that populated much of the West. And that was a consequence of the railroads and this kind of westward expansion and, and kind of uh, progress at all costs, if you will. So with so with that, you know, we we lost a lot of the species that controlled these populations of grazers. And those would have been our grizzly bear, our black bear, our mountain lions, our jaguars, our gray wolves, our red wolves, um, you know, ocelots, foxes, anything that was a predator, anything that would have either through predation or through the threat of predation would have shaped the way these grazers would have affected the landscape. So with the 
the loss of those of those populations and the declines of those populations we are left with the world we live in today which is one that's been chewed up and spit out by development that has barbed wire crisscrossing most swaths of wilderness that has roads and subdivisions and basically an omnipresent signature of man so to to look at the wilderness area and the open space that we have left what you'll find in most places aside from maybe a yellowstone or a denali is a landscape that has some grazers, some deer, some sheep, some goats, maybe some bison, but virtually no predators. And believe it or not, federal taxpayers, your tax dollars are supporting programs where the federal government kills predators. That's happening today. That's happening throughout the West. There are many states where predators like coyotes, there are bounties for them. So in Utah, if you shoot a coyote and you bring in its lower jaw in one of its ears, they'll pay you money. That's happening today. There are places like in Texas where there's no season for mountain lions. So if you're a private landowner or somebody who hunts public land, you can, at 12 months of the year, 365 days a year, you can go trap, kill, do pretty much whatever you want to a mountain lion. There's only 100 left. And that... In Texas. In Texas. And I'm not sure about other states, but I would imagine there are states with similar circumstances where mountain lions are, are, are hunted without regulation. And a lot of, a lot of this kind of really top down heavy handedness has basically left a greater ecosystem that, that exists across North America as incredibly impacted. And what you're left with are populations of say deer, like the whitetail, for example, that lives all the way up from the Eastern edge of the Rockies, um, and, and, and further west in some places, but essentially it's the deer that you would find from the Rockies all the way to the eastern seaboard. These deer are prolific. They breed, um, they have twins, and they have no predators. So with anything in nature, you have checks and balances. Traditionally, you would have had wolves or some predator keeping those individuals on the move, keeping them out of creeks, keeping their populations in check. Of course, you have disease and disturbance events like fire that will shape some of these populations as well. But what you're left with is basically a very human-influenced landscape. We live in the Anthropocene. That's the epic we live in. And that is defined by a time shaped by man. So in these places where you have wildlife, like a deer, which is a, which is a fine example, or even rabbits in, in some places, if you don't have a predator influencing these populations, they will exceed the carrying capacity of the land. So from an ecology standpoint, and f- from a from a perspective of somebody who's who's read the literature, you know, I've, I've, I have a graduate degree from UC Berkeley, an undergraduate degree, I worked there for a long time, I mean, I'm an ecologist through and through, and I've, I've read the papers out there, and there's, you're not going to find a science paper that tells you hunting whitetail is a bad thing to do if you do it in an ecologically mindful way. And the reason why it's so important is because if these populations are, are left to just kind of run the course, they are going to exceed the carrying capacity, which means you'll have more animals on the land than the land can sustain. And as a consequence, the ecosystem will be impacted negatively. You'll have a, a decline in species richness, the number of species that can be sustained by the land. You're going to have erosion. You're going to have um, intensive grazing around water or other nutrients like salt licks, perhaps. So you kind of have this altered ecosystem where we have positioned ourselves as the predators or positioned ourselves as the top, the apex species. So hunting, whether it's 
you know, just from a very blunt standpoint. I mean, that's the way that these populations need to be managed. And even places like Yosemite, I mean, there's papers out there that look at the loss of oak trees in Yosemite Valley simply because the deer can graze there without fear of predation because the mountain lions don't want to be in the valley because of the people and you're losing oak trees and now you're having Douglas fir and other conifers encroaching on these meadows that make Yosemite what it is. Why are there bounties on predators like mountain lions? Um, is it because the they'll kill your cow? Yeah, so the example of coyotes in Utah is, is, is likely a, a relict of just perhaps that place and kind of the land management values that that are that exist in there were the bad guys in lion king yeah take you know, them out i mean it, it it it's funny because in texas there's this there's this stigma that mountain lions kill cattle there's no records of mountain lions killing cattle in texas i mean there's there's i've talked to people who say golden eagles are a threat for cattle i mean maybe i've seen a golden eagle pull a fawn out of a field but i mean maybe you lose one one calf or something but i've seen a golden eagle pull a fawn yeah so they'll eat in the spring golden eagles will definitely eat fawns whoa yeah so but there's this stigma that like predators are out there to kill your livestock which i'm sure there are examples of that taking place but it's not i mean a mountain lion in texas has a home range of say 70 square miles you know i mean it's not eating 20 cattle a day so this whole threat is just kind of i think a a byproduct of our of humanity's need to feel that dominance the 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 need to say i can go out there and kill the top predator i'm top dog it's something i can do and i think it's also just a byproduct of yeah of our culture and the way that we've quote unquote won the west you know some of the first things we did when we got out when we when people moved west was kill predators um, and there's the famous Teddy uh, Roosevelt story, the teddy bear. I mean, he was a big game hunter and he came out to California and wanted to hunt a grizzly. And he, the people who took him, took him to a grizzly bear that was chained to a tree. You know, he was one of the first people who developed the moral and ethical code of hunting, which spawned the Boone and Crockett Wait, 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 I've never heard this story. Yeah. So, so I, I know that Teddy Roosevelt was the the father of creating national parks right. in our the country. Father of conservation. Father of conservation yeah. in a big way. Yeah. I mean, he set aside a lot of the wilderness we have today. And 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 this and it goes back to the power of hunting in the sense that it's shaped the open spaces that we have in America. Um and and specifically in the sense that when we moved west, when people moved west and, you know, took away Native Americans, destroyed the bison herds, killed predators, and, and kind of did what we, what we you know, thought was right um, at the, for the sake of progress, um, you were left with places that were largely devoid of, of wildlife. You know, whether it was the salmon that once flooded rivers in California, or whether it was the California grizzly bear, which is, which is now extinct, or whether it was pronghorn in the West. And the people who stood up for the wildlife were hunters. These were people who said, my most or, or, or fishermen, you know, what they were passionate about was fishing and hunting. And they knew that with the decline of these species, that there was somebody who needed to stand up to the plate and say, I'm going to have a stake in this. And whether it was the tule elk that a rancher in central California found in his property, the last I think it was maybe 20 individuals. I mean, that was a rancher. The last bison, every bison that we have, the plains bison that exists today are because of a rancher found them and decided he should protect them. Do you know how low those numbers got at one point? I remember reading a story 
a bison a i mean under 100 plains bison so there's two types of bison there's a mountain bison and a plains bison and i want to say that the plains bison were like sub sub 100 and then and then of course in time they were uh, hybridized with cattle so from a genetic standpoint um there are more bison with cattle genes than pure bison so for someone who's never hunted before how does hunting come into this whole realm like let's say i want to go out and i want to go hunt um i want to go hunt a pig right what's the process that i need to do right yeah here in california to go hunt a pig's a great thing to hunt because they're invasive and they're pretty destructive yeah um pigs suck (laughs) yeah they're horrible sexually mature (laughs) one year old they'll have like 15 babies in a year and just keep going and dig up your hillsides plus they're ugly so you don't care about them and they taste good (laughs) they do taste good so so yeah so hunting if you wanted to get into hunting um, the first thing you got to do is take a hunter safety course. There's an online component and then there's a, a test or a written component. So that can take anywhere from, you know, you could probably get it done in three days if you, if you had a course that you'd signed up for. Um, and that basically just gives you a suite of tools to be safe while you hunt. Cause hunt, I mean, guns are dangerous. You want to be prepared. You want to know what you're getting yourself into. Um, and then with that, you'd buy a license and, the beautiful thing about buying a license is, is that that money is going directly into wildlife management. You are funding, if you're in California, you're funding California Department of Fishing Fishing Game, where I believe it's Fishing and Wildlife now. And then if you want to hunt waterfowl or you want to hunt upland, which would be like a pheasant or a quail, you're going to buy a stamp. And that's going to cost you, you know, 20 bucks, maybe a little bit more. And that money is going to go directly into waterfowl refuge uh, funding. So... Right off the bat, whether or not you actually even go hunting that year, you've already contributed perhaps 30, 40, 50 bucks. You buy an you buy ammunition, there's a, a tax, a federal tax that takes some of that money and puts it back into conservation. You buy a gun, there's tax that takes some of that money and puts it back into conservation. If you go hunt a refuge, you might need to buy an extra permit of and that money goes back into conservation. So before you even get in your duck blind or get in the field, you've, pr- I mean, it would be fair to say that you've donated, you've contributed almost, you know, 60, 70 bucks to conservation just for that year. And then you hire a guide or you go to some sort of outfitter, you're paying money into a system, an economy that is, has a stake in wildlife and wildlife habitat. So these are people who are going to know if, you know, the logging practices are having a direct impact on deer populations. And if you have a healthy deer, you're going to have a healthy forest or healthy, you know, plains community. So it's in the preservation of these, of these species, these deer, these bear, whatever it is, that the lower food web can be, you know, is supported. So a healthy deer is a reflection of healthy plants, healthy soil, healthy streams. Why? Because to make a healthy deer, you need a healthy ecosystem. I mean, a, a, a robust population, a population that, that, that produces you know, big, hardy, strong animals is a direct re- reflection on the ecosystem that supported it. Yeah. You know, which is a beautiful thing. They're not eating sunlight. They're not eating sunlight. You know, they're eating... Maybe some of them are. Here, <laughs> yeah. there's, there's this new deer <laughs> way up north. They started a cult. There's like 12 of them. Just going rogue. <laughs> yeah, they went super rogue. They're drinking the Kool-Aid. <laughs> yeah, so I mean, so hunting's a great thing, you know, and it's, it's, it's also something, you know, when I talk about it, I always tell people that it's, it's, it's a spectrum, right? It's a spectrum of best practices and could be better. There are people who you'll see on social media who post those photos of just 
you know, dead animal and they glorify it. And, and when you talk to hunters, mindful hunters, they look at that as a step backwards because that portrays a light on hunting that I think is unfortunate. And there's a, there's plenty of hunters out there that look at that as disgusting as well. And it's not the glorification of killing something. Hunting is hunting, not killing. So a lot of times you hunt, you don't actually kill anything. You're out there, you know, with your friends, with your family, having an experience out in nature. That's one thing that most people don't realize. Oh yeah. Is how fucking hard it is to go hunt successfully. Oh, I mean, it's, you'll spend a week. I, I was down in Mississippi last week or no, three weeks ago now. We spent, you know, five days, sunrise to more or less sunset, and we saw two deer, you know? Was that a hunting trip? That was a hunting trip. Um, so we ended up harvesting a, a beautiful animal, and, um, you know, she, she was eight years old. Uh, you can age her by her teeth. She was past her reproductive stage. Um, she lived her whole life in a beautiful hardwood forest eating acorns and she was healthy and she had a she 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 passed quickly you know and if you think about how a deer would die in nature it would either be from starvation in the winter from an ailment or an injury or predation and all of those options are much more painful than being alive one day with an acorn in your mouth and then passing i thought all the other deer would create a circle around them they would hold hands and then give them some kind of uh like methadone or you know or, Let or, just or not into it yeah some like just just shoot them full of heroin or something like that and they just die into oblivious bliss yeah but you know it doesn't for, happen like that i guess for people who are unsure about that they should read moby dick because that was the first book that came out and and talked about the the real truth of of humans relationship with nature and the fact that nature is not bloodless and if you want to get into that that rabbit hole of 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 the the reality of nature you can think about you can look up the transcendental movement and this whole notion of sublime nature and it's this very ethereal thing and then you can read moby dick and think about okay well nature's actually all about predator and prey dynamics it's all about thinking you're gonna die or dying i mean that's literally what shapes every force you've ever walked in it's either plants choking each other out for sunlight or beating each other up for sea otters raping each other it's horrible <laughs> but truly this, this, you know? this is what i do when I, whenever i have someone come to town i'm like let's go on a little kayaking trip and they're like sea otters i'm like i love sea otters they're great but did you know that they have some of the highest instances of rape in the animal kingdom they're like i don't want to know that this is horrible well in sea otters you know they're so amazing because they're eating all the urchins that are destroying our kelp. They are, you know, and that's that's predator prey dynamics. You know, there's urchins dying out there, yeah. <laughs> getting crushed on the chest of a sea otter. Um, so I think you know, back to this hunting thing, it we have basically positioned ourselves as an apex predator on Earth, and you can go about it in in a way that's less than admirable, and maybe that's posting a photo on social media that doesn't capture the the, the essence of stewardship and conservation in an ecologically minded arrow or bullet or you can take the other route and be a steward and be like the teddy roosevelt's and the john james audubon and countless people in america who are passionate they define themselves by the wildlife they hunt and the landscapes that they have in their backyard and that's a, a huge population of people and that is something that 
I hope in the future is 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 a story that's told and that connection is made between the maybe urban and non-hunting and the rural and the hunting communities because there's a lot of there's a lot of um, commonalities there. You know, people care about the environment, and we just need to find those 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 points of of common interest where we can have a unification and a you know. Right. And and you don't need to be a hunter, but to have the basic information about at least how national parks were created in this country. Like right. most like most think about that as a concept, like that a president would carve out these huge swaths of land for you to just be able to hang out on. Right. And it was controversial back then. You'd be like, right. oh, yeah, we're going to have this place called Yellowstone National Park and all of the American people hold deed to this land. Like you right. own a part of this land. You are incredibly right. wealthy just by being born here. Right. You hold some ownership over these national parks. And to to be in a time where we wouldn't just exploit that land was incredibly controversial. Right. And that it was a it was that he was a hunter. And that was probably the reason that he was super into it, because he loved being out in nature and probably had some super formative moments out there. Sure. Um and it's yeah, it's interesting to me. It's it's super it's super interesting because it it really isn't hunters and environmentalists should not be pitting themselves against each other. That is for sure. Right. And from a historical context, I mean they're one and the same. Whether it's Denali National Park, Charles Sheldon was the person who showed up at Denali during the Alaskan Gold Rush to hunt doll sheep, which is a beautiful sheep that that calls the the higher elevations of Alaska home. He came there to hunt these sheep, saw that they were being slaughtered by the gold miners or to feed the gold miners, and he petitioned the U.S. government to make a refuge for them so they wouldn't be extirpated from their from their native range. And that's Denali. You know, there's, I mean, that's one of the most beautiful, remote, pristine parks that exists today, and it exists because a hunter had the foresight to say, we can't let hunting and the the exploitation of our natural spaces continue because I would love to hunt these animals and experience these animals, you know, down the road. And I hope that my kids and grandkids will be able to experience this as well, you know, and John Muir came to Yosemite as a shepherd and he saw what he called these roving locusts, what they did to the landscape. And even though that being a shepherd paid for his first trip in Yosemite, he saw what was at stake. hundred percent, hundred percent. And I mean, let's take the 10,000 foot, view of just that we are humans on this earth and that like a a huge amount of our formative moments a huge amount of our moments where we we have that aha like wow that moment of you know i really don't want to be an accountant like i've never wanted to be an accountant i'm gonna go travel across the country those moments happen out in nature they (laughs) happen out at yosemite out at yellowstone and dude it's just incredibly important to be out in nature right and to have those spaces accessible to us i mean it's like you know you have it in um like all these studies coming out in the tech world now where it's like you know it it turns out this amazing study that if you're in nature for 15 minutes a week your cortisol levels go down your serotonin levels go up it's like who would have thought (laughs) right like all this basic stuff right and to be able to have that that untouched land accessible to us is something that I'm I'm super passionate about. Absolutely. And that it's it's something that you can actually make a, a difference in. Like I, I really like talking to you and I really like these um, issues around hunting and around land management because 
they're tangible and there's something that you can do about it. And, and it's, it's now, and ultimately it's going to then like these decisions that we make now are going to live on way past us. I mean, it's cliche to say, but like our, our grandchildren to be able to have these spaces for our grandchildren is something that I'm really passionate about. Yeah. And, you know, and, and one of the things that when I think about the projects that I've, I've taken on, you know, being an ecologist and, and, and wading into this creative world and finding ways to communicate ecologically minded stories to the general public has been a, a really telling experience, not only because I've, I've been kind of developing my voice, but also finding the place for those narratives to live and whether that's an editorial outlet or finding a brand to support these types of projects. Um, but nonetheless, one of the most exciting projects that I've con- kind of fallen in love with has been this whole investigation of wild horses in the American West. And back to Ben Masters, who I was shooting this uh, this whitetail management story, this film with, um, you know, he's somebody who's really invested in the horses. He's on the, the, um, the, the Wild Horse and Burrow Advisory Board. Uh, he speaks on behalf of wildlife. So he put out a statement talking about wild horses, the future of wild horses, and that, you know, he made a statement that was not very popular, but it it touched on this idea that euthanizing the wild horses in captivity might be the best way to go forward. And in response to that, we went out to Nevada and we spent some time learning about these horses. He was familiar with them, but it was my first time really out in a field or out in a blind filming wild horses on the range. And the amazing thing about this story and about American wilderness today is that you have 75,000 wild horses that are feral livestock. Wild horses went extinct with the saber-toothed tiger and the giant sloths that used to live in California. So there should be no horses in America, in North America. Every horse that's here today came over with Spanish and Mexican and European settlers. So these horses, some of them are branded. I mean, you're out there filming quote unquote wild horses. Some of them have brands on them and the rest of them are essentially feral livestock, which definitely have a place in America because they've, they're such an integral part of our identity and, you know, the West and, you know, don't get me wrong. I, I, I wholeheartedly love wild horses and think that they do have a place there's a great rolling stone song about them too right yeah so if you like the rolling stones you're hopefully (laughs) on the same page but one of the things that's really interesting about this is that you have seventy-five thousand wild horses and you have thousands and thousands and thousands i believe it's over thirty thousand wild horses in holding pens horses that have been taken off the range to try to manage the population but then those horses over the course of their life, they cost $50,000 a year, or sorry, $50,000 for the course of that horse's life to feed it, to keep it alive, to feed it alfalfa, water, you know, until it hopefully gets adopted. Adoption rates are going down, horses are continuing to breed, and the BLM is overwhelmed with this burgeoning horse population that exists in Wyoming and Nevada and Utah and California and New Mexico, all throughout the West. And emotions have really shaped the way these horses are managed. Emotions that have been driven not by science or by conservation, but by the fact that people love horses and they don't want to see them taken off the range and they don't want to see them managed with a heavy hand, which I think has taken a lot of the power away from the BLM and a lot of these federal agencies. And the byproduct of that has been inaction. 
So the BLM doesn't want to do anything, and the people who are activists on behalf of the horses are just happy they're there. But the consequence of that is you're having horses that are so, their populations are so big that they've exceeded the carrying capacity. So they're overgrazing a landscape that was already primed for overgrazing because of the cattle and all the exploitation that has existed in the West. So the horses kind of got the short end of the stick. But the reality of it is, is that you have 75,000 feral livestock horses that are destroying sage communities throughout the West, turning biodiverse, rich ecosystems that support sage grouse and pronghorn and golden eagles and black-tailed jackrabbits. And they're turning it into a monoculture of invasive cheatgrass, which is essentially a a grass that has very little ecological value. It's It would be as though you were clear-cutting the Pacific Northwest and we were just sitting idly by watching it happen. That's what's happening in the West. Thousands of acres are being overgrazed and destroyed because there's no management practices that are shaping horse populations. Keep in mind, they're feral livestock. They, they're, they're not native in that sense. And you can go drive through Nevada and you will see literally valleys of cheatgrass that extend for miles. And it's, it's essentially destroyed. It's a destroyed landscape. And that's happening every day. Is that because of their grazing patterns or because they're hooved ungulates or a combination of both? It's mostly their grazing patterns and just their densities. So horses need water throughout a course of two days, perhaps. So what happens is you have this thing called a central place foraging theory. So whether that's a hawk hunting from a telephone pole or a horse foraging around a watering hole, animals will only deviate or or a bird foraging from its nest. Animals will only go so far from their central place, whether that's a nest, a salt lick, or a watering hole. So you have these horses, these populations, these herds that basically radiate from watering holes scattered throughout the West. And Around those watering holes, the grazing, you can imagine, the closer you are to the watering hole, the heavier the grazing, and the further you get, the lighter the grazing, but you can only go so far. And these these populations are, are growing precipitously because there's nothing, nothing preys on a horse. And so the only thing controlling these horses is perhaps harsh winters or harsh summers, drought. And the consequence is you have these unmanaged large grazers that are populations are growing and they're just hammering blm lands and we went out there to try to tell that story and we have a um there's gonna be a story coming out for people who don't know blm is bureau of land management right yeah bureau of land management and january 11th a national geographic adventure there'll be a film that ben made coming out and there'll be an article that we worked on that'll talk all about this and all about the dynamics but in my eyes it's one of the most pressing stories of our time simply because this huge swath of america is not being managed because of a misunderstanding and a and a load of misinformation about wild horses. What's some of the misinformation? That they should be there. <laughs> I mean, it's feral livestock. I think they do have a place, but maybe in a in a sanctuary or somewhere where they're heavily managed. Um, that there are there's a, a a dart called a PZP. It's a it's a chemical that makes mares infertile, and a lot of people say, oh, we should just dart all the mares. Well, you should go out there and see how close you can get to a mare because you're not going to be able to dart 30,000 mares. And like a blowgun? Like- <laughs> literally like like an air-compressed <laughs> air rifle. And, and the thing that's crazy about it is even if you dart the mares with PCP, they're going to be bred 12 months a year. They're just not going to ever get pregnant. 
So think about what you're doing to an animal's physiology. If that mare is going to be in heat throughout the year, that's going to change the social dynamics. We're going to have stallions competing to breed with her and she'll never get pregnant or she may the, it's not hundred percent effective, but just that, that dynamic of if that's the solution to, to go out there and dart all the mares, first of all, you're not going to be able to, because people have tried and you can't get within 30 yards of every mare. It's impossible. What about Charles Post and his camo? Just creeping, <laughs> al- creeping along. It's hard. <laughs> I'm telling you, I spent a lot of time you, out there. You have your <laughs> Indonesian blow dart gun. <laughs> Shoot it up the horse's ass. I tried everything. I had I had sugar cubes. I had carrots. No, I'm kidding. But it's hard. I mean, <laughs> yeah, giving them all the whistles I could come up with. You know, most people have never been around uh, a horse more than a couple times, yeah. maybe at a fair. Yeah. But to actually be around a horse and compare how big a horse is compared to you oh, and yeah. how powerful this animal is. It was is mind blowing, man. Is, when you yeah. actually next to it, and you're like, "Huh, this thing could run through me and not even blink." Oh, absolutely. There's a reason they call it horsepower. Yeah, <laughs> that's so true. Yeah, horses are amazing. I they're mean, amazing and yeah. they're huge and they're powerful and they go so fast and they probably eat so much. They, yep, yeah, they eat a lot. They drink a lot. Um, they're incredible. I mean. There's nothing better than being on the back of a horse and, and watching those wild horses. I mean, I, I don't get me wrong. I think that watching wild horses out there on the range is one of the most amazing things ever. I mean, they're just magnificent creatures, but we owe it to them to to manage them so they can be healthy and the landscapes can be healthy because it's, it's a public landscape and these are our this is a public resource. So it it's frustrating that it's not being done, I think, with a ecologically guided hand. But hopefully with storytelling and, and with some awareness, you know, that paradigm might shift. But So I want to shift gears into yeah. learning about how you um, went from graduate school as an ecologist to now being a storyteller and making a living off of going out on these trips uh, partnering with brands and and doing it in um, a really thoughtful way. I think that there's um, this kind of stigma about like content creators and people on Instagram um, partnering with brands where it's like there's somehow um, a kind of like nefarious uh, like and vapid theme to it where it's just like oh it's just girls on it with butts and they want to say like oh check out my jewelry or whatever like that but what you're doing is telling really important stories with some cool brands so i want to know the story of how you got into that and actually made the the shift um to being a storyteller yeah yeah it's been um it's definitely been a journey you know i it wasn't long ago that i was living pretty much in a tent studying birds most of the day and then at night I would be working in my journal or you know working on a computer building graphs and and trying to figure out how to quantify what I was observing you know I spent my undergraduate years at Berkeley studying mostly fish freshwater ecosystems I thought I was gonna be a salmon biologist I, I love fish love water um salmon are another badass animal salmon are amazing i got to a point though where (laughs) where i i realized that and i don't want to sell myself short here but i realized a lot of the low-hanging fruit had been plucked so unless i wanted to be a salmon geneticist or you know work on a very micro level uh, you know 
I, I, I saw that, that the avenues that I wanted to pursue had been pursued. You're like, I'm going to go for the <laughs> least sexy, <laughs> least cool animal yeah. and be on the frontier of it. Yeah, I'm trying to be innovative. Yeah. No, so this I, random little newt or something <laughs> that everyone's forgotten about. So my, I mean, the way that I would describe myself in a ecologist is, is, is kind of an old school ecologist. I'm definitely passionate about natural history and, and passionate about um, kind of the, the confluence of society and the environment. Um, you know, Aldo Leopold's my hero, a, a Sand County Almanac. If you, if you haven't read it, check it out. It's, it's, that's my, my Bible. What's that book about? Um, it's basically about him buying a farm in, in, in the Midwest and, 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 and taking these walks and taking these kind of adventures throughout the seasons and really using that seasonal context to understand the ecology and natural history of, of, of his backyard, of his farm. And, um, and it, it really touches on a lot of the subtleties and kind of dynamics and dramas that unfold. Dramas that that maybe are lost today. Something like what spring means. You know, spring is is the sound of the Swainson's thrush and, and winter is is following the tracks of field mice and, and seeing the, the whisk of owl wings on snow and and being curious about maybe what dramas unfolded the night before or watching the belly of a skunk, you know you know, climb over a log and think about what he was smelling or looking for. And it's kind of this really cool uh, observation of nature, but also this reflection of society and kind of what we've done to the land and how we've really kind of chewed up and spit out a lot of places, but how, you know, an ecologically minded hand and conservation can really restore these places and kind of rewild some of these landscapes really quickly too yeah that's that's the thing that amazes me about planet earth is how quickly ecosystems can bounce back if they're given a chance right yeah if you give them an inch they will go i mean um especially salmon especially salmon especially pink salmon yeah i'm sure you know the story about uh the elwa oh absolutely when they blew up the dams and they're like oh well maybe they'll be back in a few years and it was like neck the next winter they yeah. had this crazy big salmon run yep yep and and that's i mean a lot of those initial fish uh were pink salmon and they have a great life history that that suits them really well for that um which I, we could dive into but to to rewind here and just get back onto the your question about kind of where I came from and all of that, um, you know, it, so it started in this, in this very, this very nerdy, very focused, um, you know, pursuit of science. And at that point at age 20, I was really on that track. I wanted to be a scientist. I wanted to run a research station and, and live out in the woods and basically, uh, you know, kind of live this life guided by, by nature. Um, so I took, I took that undergraduate experience. I transitioned into, I was actually hired by UC Berkeley as a field research assistant. So for a few years, I worked with grad students on topics ranging from uh, tree morphology to salamander, you know, life history and migration to, you know, working on fish, fish stories and frogs and algae and, you know, so much, so many different topics. But it gave me a chance to, to wet, you know, kind of get my feet wet and experience all these different topics and, and see what I was in love with. And after about two, three years, I had an observation. I saw this bird. I, I watched it forage. I, I kind of saw it do, it do its thing. It's called the American Dipper. A lot of fishermen love it. It's John Muir's favorite bird. Um, great, great species. And I fell in love with this bird, developed a few questions that I thought were pretty interesting. My boss, and then she became my advisor, Dr. Mary Power, uh, a renowned food web ecologist. Uh, she took me under her wing. I, I joined her lab as a graduate student. Um, 
it's a PhD. It was a PhD program. They they didn't offer master's degrees. Um, so I went into it really anticipating, you know, a five, six, seven, eight year uh, kind of push, and and that was going to be a time for me to to grow as a scientist. You know, develop some skills that would position me well to pursue a you know a a career in science. But almost immediately after starting, I found this this hole, this place that I was missing enthusiasm. And I wasn't sure what it was. I don't, I wasn't sure if I was just overwhelmed or intimidated. I mean, being in a PhD program at UC Berkeley is, is intense. You know, a lot of people drop out, a lot of people really struggle. And I, and I definitely felt like every day was a challenge. And I was also teaching. So I was teaching field biology to undergraduates, kids who are super smart, teaching the course that when I was an undergrad was the hardest course I ever took. So it was just a lot of firsts. And meanwhile, I was, I'd been exposed to Instagram. I'd been dating a girl who was a photographer and a great storyteller. And through that exposure to her and this kind of, this awareness of storytelling, I started, I started kind of applying some of the lectures and people I was meeting to this storytelling narrative and thinking, hmm, you know, I wonder what the general public would think about you know, some of the people I work with who climb giant redwood trees and, and study the shape and structure of the leaves at 300 feet and have these amazing adventures into the backcountry. You know, these are things that that I was inspired by, but I didn't see being communicated in the outdoor world. And over that first year, I started, you know, really kind of considering diving into that storytelling kind of capacity. And I got an Instagram and, and, and basically just kind of knew what I was passionate about, which was ecology. And I started just cold calling some brands, you know, cold calling people and saying, whether it was I needed a new bag for my my field research or needed new waders or saw a brand that maybe would benefit or could would be entertained by me writing them something or taking a picture of me in the field and sending it to them. So I reached out to a few brands, you know, asking nothing more than for maybe a place to write or, you know, a new jacket, something that I couldn't afford at the time. And it was, it was just very simple, very kind of innocent in that sense. And I didn't really have necessarily a goal, but just to, to develop my, my voice. And three years into graduate school, I had kind of found a place in my life where I knew pursuing that PhD wasn't for me. And I had spent that three years developing my voice, developing relationships with brands, developing my eye and, and, and my penmanship and I felt like it was time for me to move on and take this next big leap. So I gathered my advisory committee, people who had really nurtured me and supported me for, you know, five, six years at that point and told them, you know, I want to be, a, I want to communicate science. I want to tell your stories. I want to illuminate the work that you all are doing and the work that my contemporaries are doing. And I think through good writing and filmmaking and photography and working with other creatives, I can do that. And I didn't have necessarily a hero or somebody who had done that before me, but I knew it was possible because brands and people have been telling me it was interesting and that there was a space for it. So when I had that conversation, thinking I was going to be dropping out, essentially, my committee looked at me and said, well, number one, we support you. It's amazing. We think that you'd be great at it. And number three, if you write up a thesis, you know, we'll give you a master's degree. So I was elated, obviously, like blown away. I didn't think it was possible. And I spent a few months writing up a thesis and submitted it, finished. 
and then went right into my first film project, which is with Travel Alberta. It was a film on conservation, which will be coming out this year. And had that initial confirmation that, you know, there is a place for you. There is a, there's a, an interest in these types of stories. And then kind of from there, you know, with a, a huge pulse of support from Berkeley and, and my advisor who still to this day is my unwavering mentor. I mean, I, I just wrote her a, a nice letter. Thank you note yesterday. You know, I, I think about her always, but it's been this great journey of, of watching uh, a general awareness and interest in ecological stories develop but also developing my voice and, and, and finding a community of people like yourself who are interested in conservation, interested in, 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 in weaving these narratives into adventure or a surf trip or you know a character-driven narrative that might inspire a next generation of stewards. So it's, it's, been, a, it's been a totally moving kind of, uh, there's been a bunch of moving targets, but I feel like as my experience and as my business have grown, I keep finding brands and people who are really excited about it. And the feedback I get from the, from people who've seen my work just keep inspires me to keep going. And, um, looking ahead, there's a few projects that I have in the, in the pipeline that I'm really proud of that are really nerdy and conservation heavy and ecology heavy, but hopefully will continue to shape the way that we manage and, and perceive landscapes. Will you tell a story about um, one of the most successful partnerships with a brand? Because there are a lot of people out there who are super smart, super passionate. I think that the amount of people who care about the environment, who care about conservation and want to do something about it is huge. Right. Um, but there are a lot of people who are afraid and don't think that they can make a living hmm. doing it. Right. Um, and I want to get into the process of you being able to figure out how to make a living doing this. Yeah. Where did that jump happen? And what was, um, God, this is a long question. I hate asking long <laughs> questions. I'm trying to get better no, it's at good. this. It's um, good. Like what's, what's the actual process look like when you reach out to a brand right. um, and pitch a project? Yeah. You know, it's um, that, that process has, has changed a lot and Initially, it was initially, you know, I didn't have much of a business, so I was pretty much taking everything I could get, I could get, you know, and when I left graduate school, I was doing some environmental consulting, I was doing some tutoring, I was writing for a local newspaper, I was writing a few pieces a week for some small outdoor brands. I mean, hustling, you know, I mean, to be a freelancer, it's hard. And I was wearing, I still wear many hats and I was pretty much doing everything I could. I was working at a ranch, you know, working with horses a few days a week. I mean, literally just, I had, a, I knew how much money I needed to make that month. And that was my goal. And probably 30, 40% of, of the jobs I was taking on had a ecology or a storytelling component, but a lot of it was just mucking stalls and, you know, cleaning tack, you know, and just basic work. And over the years, over the last three, four years, those conversations and those projects have, have become more and more tied to ecology and storytelling. And today, you know, one of the brands that supports me the most and has really been open to 
my work and my passion is mountain hardware. And they've taken me on and basically said, we want to support you as a storyteller. We want to support your, your efforts to create awareness around conservation and stewardship. And, you know, we, we honor your perspectives and, and that's a dream. I mean, I never thought in a million years that there would be brands out there. I mean, Keen's another brand I work with and, and Mossy Oak and, and those are brands that basically have just said, keep doing what you're doing. Um, and that's been, you know, four years of hustling, four years of, of cons- being consistent. You know, I day one when I started writing and, and putting stuff on social media and, and creating content, it's been nerdy and conservation rooted. And, you know, I oftentimes will include references in my Instagram uh, page if people want to cite my work. I mean, this is I'll go out, I'll find a topic, say, in New York Times. I'll go into Google Scholar, read the science papers shoot a project, write a story, have an opinion. And it's just like writing a term paper for me, you know, except I'm just weaving in more visuals and, you know, writing it in a way that's, you know, tailored to the general public. But finding ways to monetize that has been, has required a lot of creativity. You know, a lot of times I'm thinking of my heroes, thinking of people who, who have those businesses and have that, that suite of skills that I'd like to develop one day. And basically begging them and and finding ways to get involved, you know, whether it's producing or whether it's fact checking or whether it's writing scripts or being an assistant or learning how to shoot video or shooting photos. I mean, it's anything and everything. I mean, I'm an ecologist and I have no formal training in, in, in filmmaking or photography or anything like that. But I've just, I've, I've been steadfast with my intentions and just have been really open to learning and really transparent you know my what i tell people is that i care about conservation and i care about wildlife and ecology and i've been saying that for four years to brands you know and sometimes they kind of look at you like doe-eyed and they want to work with you and other times you know it just kind of goes over their head so i think it's i think it's a a lot of it is find something you're passionate about and if conservation is it then be flexible and know that you might have to have a normal nine to five for the first two years, but every extra dollar that you make will fund that trip or fund that project, you know, and also be willing to reach out to people. There's a lot of people out there who are telling stories that you're excited about. Send them emails. I mean, some of the most inspiring people I work with today are people that I literally wrote like love letters to, you know, I love your films. You're so cool. (laughs) Your work is amazing. It inspires me daily please let me work with you, you know? You, you made a couple points that I want to reiterate because they're really important. One is that when you started doing this, you didn't switch your career 100% over all at once. Right. And I think that's a big mistake that people make when they go out on an entrepreneurial career. They're like, I'm quitting the nine to five. I'm bucking it. And then three months later, they're like, oh, shit, I don't have a paycheck. Right. You did it incrementally. Right. And you figured out a way to just make a larger and larger percentage of your income be doing the the content creation over time. Right. And I I think that that's a much more... um, approachable way for people whether it's like i i'm really interested in ocean conservation or i'm really interested whatever it is having that be um incremental is something that i I think was a really good choice that you made and the second um what was the second shit i forgot the second keep keep going keep going and i'll remember it well and one of the it was that everyone is reachable right that's a big thing that a lot of people how could i get in touch with this person they would never write me back like 
a lot of the time they actually would yep. just don't make the email too long and know how to write something that is professional. Right. I mean, that, that was like a major thing in, in my life early on was just reaching out to a few people and then Absolutely. having them hit me back and be like, what Von Chenard just called me back. Yeah. Like that's, that's crazy. Yeah. But, um, and being uh, passionate, but being passionate and yeah. pe- when people know where your intentions come from, right. They're willing to to stoke you out because I'm sure if you had some 18 year old kid be like, "Hey man, like I'm really into what you're doing." Yeah, you bet. Like, Hell yeah, thank you. Yeah, I really appreciate it. Yeah, and I get emails all I mean almost yeah. daily from people, and I I literally what I say is find something you're passionate about and have conversations with people in person as much as you can. If if you walk in, it was, it's just like when you're a student. You know, if you walk up to your professor's door with a huge smile on your face, excited about the topic, they'll make time. You know, and and being passionate is, is, is sadly a rare thing. You know, you'll, you'll meet a lot of people who don't know what they love, but if you can really think long and hard about what you love and experience many things and find those things you hate, but also find things you love, then that whole process will be all the more fun. And people will see that on your face and know where your intentions come from. And, you know, and, and like I said, be flexible, you know, be, I did a lot of work for free, a lot of volunteer work. You know, I volunteered with so many conservation and wildlife groups and, you know, maybe I was working on a seal rehab project, but I had a camera and I was like, okay, well, I would like to develop my skills shooting photos. So I'll volunteer and work with seals and have a camera in my pocket and shoot some photos. Or, you know, I'd like to learn how to ride horses better so I can work, you know, on off horseback. So how do I do that? Well, I'm going to you know, clean stalls four days a week and then trade that for horse riding lessons. So then I can go shoot a project in West Texas on horseback and talk about desert bighorn sheep. You know, I mean, literally I learned how to ride horses five years ago and a month ago we shot a, a amazing project on horseback. And it, it, that was me saying five years ago, that's what I want to do. You know, I want to be able to have these experiences. Okay. And to have those experiences, what steps do I need to take to prepare myself for them? And I think a lot of it's foresight and I think a lot of it is just being steadfast, you know, and just being okay with cleaning horse shit out of a stall because one day you're going to be able to ride one and shoot some great photos of a sheep up on a mountain in Texas, you know? Absolutely. So what are uh, some of the skills that you're working to improve most right now? Yeah. I mean, I, I grew up hunting, but I'm not fluent, you know, that's such a, that's such a, a new thing for me in a lot of ways. So trying to become more familiar with it so I can talk about it with an informed opinion. Um, that's a, that's a big thing for me learning. I mean, obviously ecology, like ecosystems. I know a lot about some, I know a lot about the West, but I've been learning more about the Southeast for white tailed deer live. Cause I'm working on this film with Ben masters and Mossy Oak on white tailed deer. So it's been a lot of just reading, becoming more familiar with conservation, the history of it. So I can have that context so I know where we've come from and, and perhaps can make a better informed opinion on where we're headed. Um, horses have been something like I touched on earlier that have always intrigued me. And, and so I've, I've been actively, you know, developing those skills. Uh, another area that I'm, I'm really interested in and, and passionate about is, is ranching just because a lot of the public lands we have left in America are ranch lands. A lot of California's ranch is our range lands. I studied rangelands when I was in college um, so I do have a little bit of a of an understanding of it, but what I'm learning is that millions of acres of America are managed by people, by stewards 
who not only put food on our table, but who grow grass and grow soil, you know, and a, and a good rancher is a grass farmer and a good grass farmer has good soil and good soil supports a plethora of species, creates habitat. So while it's easy to get caught up in the, in the factory farming aspect of beef, there are countless examples of ranchers who are stewards first and foremost, and they exist throughout the country. Moving forward, um, let's say in the next 10 years, what would you like to see happen in the United States land management? What would be some big wins? I think some big wins would just be a better understanding of our wild landscapes. I think we have so many people who have their opinions made up. People, either rural people who have their minds made up about urban people or urban people who have their minds made up about rural people. And the reality of it is, is that urban dollars are shaping the economies that drive rural communities. Their beef is getting put on your plate in Seattle and your votes and the way that you the perceptions you have about those people affects their ability to do what they do. And the reality of it is, is if you took all the ranchers off rangelands, you're not going to have people stewarding those landscapes. Those landscapes evolved with grazers. So we don't have bison running from Canada to Mexico anymore. So if, if you're a rancher and you manage your herd to replicate the way bison grazed, high intensity, rapid rotation, you can create habitat and healthy soils and healthy grasslands. So what I hope to see in the future is, the, is, is, a, is a better understanding of how landscapes are managed because there are so many examples of people doing just the most amazing work and I'd love for stewardship to be a word that everybody knows. And I think that if people can have that in their vocabulary and understand what stewardship means, they'll be open to the idea that there could be a hunter who's a steward and there could be a rancher who's a steward. And just that just having that word i believe steward was an old wooden ship <laughs> brought over in the early spanish days it was correct a, it was a galleon yes okay <laughs> it's uh, yeah it's but it's a word that means so much stewardship is something that if you like the outdoors a steward created that opportunity for you you know most like like we talked about earlier, the public lands that you that you enjoy is because somebody had the foresight to protect it, and he was, you know, I mean, the other reality is is that it wasn't long ago that your grandfather or great grandfather was a farmer and a hunter. You know, I mean, that's that's if 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 your family, I mean, whatever it was, two three generations ago. So recent. So recent. So recent. You know? I was just down for Thanksgiving <laughs> like, with my grandmother, who's 85, and I realized, yeah. I was like, I never really learned how you, she lives down in LA, I was like, yeah. I never really learned how you got to LA. She's like, well, my parents were over on a horse and wagon, and they came in from Missouri, Yeah. and they came out here to be farmers. I'm like, whoa, that's <laughs> your parents. Yeah. Your parents were on a horse and a wagon. Right. And now I'm showing you YouTube videos on my phone. <laughs> right. It's, we're not that detached. You know, it wasn't long ago that our relatives were working the land in some capacity or you know, whatever it was. So I think just having that connection with earth and having a connection with nature, whether it's reading a Sand County Almanac and being reminded of what seasons mean and phonology, which is a great word, by the way, y'all should look it up. Phonology is the, is the, this, the, the events that take place in nature, the change of events, like the, the schedule, the calendar of events in nature. 
And just being aware of that and being aware of our connection to nature, whether it's through your dollars, the way you vote, the clothes you wear, cotton's a thirsty plant that grows throughout America. So whether or not you think you're connected to the land, the clothes you buy, the food you eat, the the way you use your money, the way you vote, I mean, we all are affecting nature and the natural spaces. So I think looking ahead, I'd love people to be more aware of that. And I think telling stories that talk about some of these people, these characters working the land and some of these dynamics, whether it's white-tailed deer, whether it's wild horses, or whether it's some profile on the Elwha, you know, some epic river. I mean, there's so many ways to inspire people and remind people that we are connected. This is the Anthropocene, you know, like this is the time of humans. So an hour and a half long documentary on goji berries. I mean, it could be amazing. The potential is huge. This is the inception of a great <laughs> documentary. So I need a goji berry sponsor for anybody who's listening. <laughs> but um, yeah, so I think I think looking ahead, you know, I want to make more films um, that 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 tell those stories, that communicate those stories. Um, but yeah, I think right now for me, hunting and ranching are two topics that I'm pretty intrigued by because they're shrouded and just inundated with misinformation and and examples that really illuminate the worst aspects of them i mean we've all probably seen cowspiracy or some gnarly photo of a dead animal but how many of us have have seen a film that celebrates holistic management and and stewardship on the range or a hunter that's protecting an ecosystem through the sale of a of a of a desert bighorn cheap tag you know, I mean, that's happening. Like a lot of the money that goes into Texas conservation comes from two desert bighorn sheep tags that auction for eighty to one hundred ten thousand dollars a year. Wow, that's a lot of money. That's, that's crazy. Creating habitat for javelina and mountain lions and mule deer and white-tailed deer and rattlesnakes and monarch butterflies and songbirds and raptors. That's so cool, dude. I want to go out into nature right now. You know? I'm getting me excited. It's crazy. And y'all should get binoculars. Ooh. Binoculars are a big thing. Binoculars will change your life. Carry those around. <laughs> Wise words from Charles Post. Yep. Um, anything else you want to talk about before we wrap up here? Let's see. Um, I don't know. I would say, yeah, I would say spend more time walking slowly in nature, you know? People talk a lot about how many miles they covered when they go on a hike or how high they climbed. But if you're at all interested in nature, I would say just slow it down, you know, and start looking and start listening. Get to know your backyard, your patch of earth well, because you'll start to understand how it changes in time and the, you know, obscurities or things that maybe are anomalous. And you'll start to become familiar with just like the ebb and flow of the seasons. And whether you're in Brooklyn or you're in San Francisco or you're out in, you know, Moscow, Colorado, I mean, there is nature there. And if if stewardship is something that resonates and, and having a connection to the natural landscapes outside means something to you, I would just suggest that you slow it down because there's so much amazing wildlife out there for example san francisco one of the biggest migrations of raptors that takes place in the world flies right through downtown you know you could be in the 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 beating heart of the city and watch a a bald eagle fly by i've seen it nobody looks up you know so yeah i would just say slow it down there's a lot out there to see 
you don't have to hike 20 miles. You can hike two and just take a seat and just like let the world flow by because it's amazing and your heart it will drop and you'll feel good and you can take a cold plunge in some glacial lake afterwards and crack a beer and you'll be stoked you did. <laughs> Beautiful, man. <laughs> well, where can people get in touch with you? Uh, yeah, you can shoot me an email if you have questions at charlesgiffordpost at gmail.com. Uh, two Fs? Two Fs, G-I-F-F-O-R-D, just like Gifford Pinchot. Uh, or Instagram, it's at Charles underscore post or my website, it's charlespost.com. Um, keep an eye out for some films we have coming out. Um, they should be pretty good. And you can, you can check us out here on Kyle Tierman's Instagram. I'm sure yours Instagram. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but yeah, thanks so much. And thanks for taking the time. Yeah. Appreciate it. Hope you enjoyed that conversation with Charles. Be sure to reach out to him. Be sure to reach out to me. Let me know who you want me to have on the podcast next. And if you like this one, please give it a rating on iTunes. Share it with a friend. That's how we get the word out. Until next time, have a beautiful day.